Am I not on? Hello? Okay. Hey, good morning, everybody. Well, that was fun, wasn't it? Shall we just go home now? Because I can't follow all this. Uh, hey, uh, we're in the month of December. We've been talking about Christmas a lot. And, uh, and it's, uh, it's a time when we're all thinking about Christmas. And, and uh, who, everybody got their Christmas? Who's got their Christmas shopping done already? <laughs> was that a scoff? <laughs> who, got it done, who got it done right after Thanksgiving? See, I admire you people. That is amazing to me. I am not that person. I was always the person that was out on Christmas Eve trying to figure out what to do, especially for Robbie. Poor woman. Pray for her. But uh, uh, we're in the month of December. We're talking and thinking about Christmas. We sang our Christmas song, you know, and, and part of that song was, you know, tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. And every year, Christmas poses a question to the world. Really, it should be posing a question to us as well. Namely, why did Jesus come into the world? Why is it important that that Jesus was born? And I'm sure we all have a lot of different ways in which we would answer that. I'm sure there would be many varied uh, answers to that, depending on background or or the ways we've been taught. Um, But interestingly enough, the answer to that question is going to be in our text Today, as we're continuing our study in the Gospel of John, he's going to plainly state why he was born. And we're going to see what that means for us as his followers. So as I said, we're continuing our study in the Gospel of John. If you've got a Bible or a Bible app, if you will find your way to John chapter 18, please, if you'd like to follow along. We're in the second part of John's Gospel. Remember, it's broken into two books, the book of signs and the book of glory. So here we are in the book of glory, and last week we read about Jesus' arrest and his trial before the Sanhedrin, who were the the leaders within Israel at that time. Uh, We looked at the characters. They were the religious leaders at that time. We looked at the characters in that story. We looked at Judas and Peter and the members of of the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, and we considered what was revealed about their hearts as this as this crisis unfolded uh, in the in the story, and they were cautionary tales for us. And we considered our own hearts, like what happens with us, what are our responses when we're put to the test like that. Today we're going to pick the drama back up, and we're going to follow Jesus as he's taken before the Roman governor Pilate, and he's interrogated. And there is a lot to contemplate in this uh, account. Things that I believe, especially at this time, we need to pay close attention to. Uh, In this chapter, as well as the next, the word king appears a dozen times. Uh, uh, King and kingship are the central theme to everything we're going to be looking at in in this chapter, as we conclude this chapter, and into the next. Uh, It's it's the centerpiece of what we're to take away from this. These events that unfolded were the means by which Jesus is truly exalted as king. But the remarkable thing about it all, at least from John's perspective as he's writing this gospel out, is that this time of exaltation is happening for Jesus while the characters in the story don't know it's happening. It's happening, and they're completely unaware. This is a consistent theme with John. Misunderstanding and confusion around Jesus' words and actions during the first part of his ministry in the book of Signs. I mean, it surrounded all of those stories. There was always confusion, people misunderstanding what was going on. And it drives home the point 
that this divine revelation of Christ's work is not something that is easily or even possibly perceived by the natural eye. But John wants to make sure that we read this with a different eye. So he makes us insiders into this story, giving us this elevated view so that we have everything we need to properly interpret this event, what's happening here. So today we're going to read about Jesus before Pilate, and we're going to discover what we can about the nature of the mission of God's kingdom that's at work in this world. So if you're there in John chapter 18, we're going to pick up where we left off. By uh, We'll start by rereading verse 28 and then, and then go from there. So this is Jesus' trial before Caiaphas ended in the early hours of the morning. Remember, he spent the whole night. They were interrogating him, beating him without, without actually proving anything. Then he was taken to the headquarters of the Roman governor. His accusers didn't go inside because it would defile them, and they wouldn't be allowed to celebrate the Passover. So Pilate, the governor, went out to them and asked, What's your charge against this man? Well, we wouldn't have handed him over to you if he weren't a criminal, they retorted. Then take him away and judge him by your own law, Pilate told them. Only the Romans are permitted to execute someone, the Jewish leaders replied. This fulfilled Jesus' prediction about the way he would die. Okay, so these verses set the stage for the upcoming drama of this interrogation. The religious leaders need the Roman governor, Pilate, to carry out an execution, but they also know that a charge of blasphemy isn't going to hold any weight with him. He could care less uh, about that. Pilate, the Roman governor, is there as a provisional leader over that territory. He wants to prevent riots, and he could care less about the strange religious views of the people he's supposed to govern. So this, then, is what moves the trial from the realm of religion to that of government and politics. Jesus, uh, John, rather, doesn't describe what the accusation is against Jesus. We have to look to the other gospel accounts to understand that they bring him before Pilate and accuse him of the one thing that they know will get Pilate's attention. They say that Jesus has set himself up as a rival king to Caesar. Pilate's part in this is is vitally important for us as we look to this narrative and try to understand these events and what they mean to us. Because we see that no one people group was responsible for Jesus' death. That's why Pilate's part of this story is so important. This was a Gentile and Jewish cooperation. It had nothing to do with race. This was the backlash of religion and political powers. Those two forces, those two, I'll say, powerful forces in this world at work arrayed against the purposes of Jesus. That's what's going on here. So the stain of this is on humanity at all. It's not down to one particular people group. Now, we know Pilate from history, both from historical writings and from archaeological findings as well. Philo, the ancient Jewish philosopher, wrote about him. Josephus, uh, the Jewish historian, talked about him. Tacitus, the Roman historian, talked about him. So we've got a lot of different views on him. According to their memories of him, Pilate was a cruel, power-hungry, extortionist of a man. We know that uh, he, he didn't come from noble birth. He was elevated to this position. Uh, and we know that he'd been in trouble with Tiberius Caesar 
for the way he was governing things in that region, in Palestine, what they called Palestine uh, at that time. In fact, it, 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 it was the violent crushing. A little later on from this thing that we're reading about today, a little later on from that, he violently crushed an uprising that happened in Samaria. He killed women and children, and that was enough for Tiberius Caesar to call him back to Rome, and he disappears into the mists of history from that point on. We don't know after that. He was a Roman official, so he was naturally to dis- disposed to thinking of himself as superior to the locals that he was uh, to rule. And when we put the historical information together with the gospel narratives, we actually get a picture here of Pilate staging a little bit of theater in this trial in order to assert his own sense of authority and superiority over the Jewish leaders that he was constantly in contest with. In other words, all of these people that we're going to be reading about today were fighting a political battle and using Jesus as a prop for their own purposes. And it feels like nothing really changes in our world. So Pilate interrogates Jesus, verse 33. And Pilate went back in to his headquarters and he called for Jesus to be brought to him. Are you the king of the Jews? He asked him. Jesus replied, is this your own question or did others tell you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate retorted. Your own people and their leading priests brought you to me for trial. Why? What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. All right, man, we could camp here for the next month or two because there is so much happening here. We're not going to, I feel like we're not going to do service to it, but I'm, I'm, I'm imploring you, take some time, read this over, meditate on what's happening here. That's what the Bible is supposed to be. It's not an answer book. It's, it's, it's Eastern meditation literature. It's meant for us to contemplate and think through for a little bit. But once again, misunderstanding causes people to be talking about one thing while Jesus is talking about another. So Pilate goes back in, inside to interrogate Jesus. And he gets right to the point and he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, this is the only charge that has any relevance to Pilate whatsoever, because his job is to keep the peace in that territory and look after the interests of Rome. And rival kings to Caesar threaten the interests of Rome. And according to the rules of the empire, they have to be dealt with brutally and publicly. They have to be squashed immediately. Now, Pilate could just look at Jesus and realize that he presented no tangible threat to Rome. I mean, he's tied up, he's beaten, his little band of followers has scattered to the winds, nobody knows where they are. And in terms of the way power works in this world, Jesus would seem totally insignificant to Pilate. So the real underlying question that Jesus is asking here is, do you think you're the king of the Jews? Because if Jesus does, then he can still rally a mob He can still spark an insurrection, and so he would. Even if he just thinks he's the king of the Jews, he would need to be squashed. I mean, this was the only real issue from Pilate's side. That's all he cared about. And Jesus won't answer him directly. It's so intriguing. First, Jesus reverses the interrogation 
He, he's not answering questions. He's asking them. Uh, to ask Pilate, uh, you know, did you think of this question yourself or did somebody else give this to you? Obviously, he's referring to the religious leaders who are just outside the door. And two things are happening in that moment right there. One, Jesus is telling Pilate that he should be able to assess from his own eyes that Jesus poses no tangible threat to Rome. He's basically saying, hey, you're a smart man. Uh, What do you think uh, of what's happening here? And secondly, he's highlighting the fact that Pilate's being manipulated by the Jewish leaders who brought Jesus to him. In other words, Jesus is saying to Pilate, you don't see me as a threat. They did which is implicitly asking, why are you letting them call the shots in this situation? And all of that would have chafed at Pilate. The whole dynamic between he and the Sanhedrin was that of a power struggle, which is likely why he shoots back, uh, you know, that he's not interested at all, uh, has no interest at all in Jewish religious squabbles. He doesn't care. And he tries to regain control of the interrogation and demands to know what Jesus has done to warrant this arrest from his own people. Because, guys, this was highly unheard of. The Jewish people at that time, they were they were an oppressed people. They banded together. The, the Rome was their common enemy, their common you know threat. They weren't handing each other over to Rome. This was highly unusual. And that's what Pilate's trying to, to get at in this. What's happening here that has warranted this? And here, for the first time in John's gospel, Jesus speaks of a kingdom. Now, in in the other gospel accounts, especially in Matthew, kingdom comes up all the time. Not in John's. In John's, he waits till this moment here when Jesus begins to answer these questions. And he never, Jesus never applies the term king to himself. In the next verse, he'll actually dodge the direct question again because he wants nothing to do with the political implications of the word the way Pilate is using it. Instead, Jesus defines his kingship and his kingdom for Pilate. And for us, if we'll listen to him, he says, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, it would follow the pattern, is what he's saying in this, of earthly kingdoms. And my followers, they'd arm themselves, they'd get lawyers and guns and money, and they would fight to push my views forward and keep me free. But my kingdom, he said, is not... And it's translated often as of this world. The word in the Greek is from this world. It's not from this world. It doesn't originate from this place, this broken place. This is so very important. It's a foundational truth that the church loses sight of again and again throughout our long history. That God's kingdom operates among but is distinct from human governments. Jesus is not denying that he's a king, but he refuses to equate it or even place it in the same category as that of empire. When he says his kingdom isn't from this world, he doesn't mean that it's only a spiritual thing and only deals with intangibles or whatever. No, he's not saying it has nothing to do with this world. No, he means his kingdom is not cut from the same cloth as this world. He's not saying my kingdom is out in space somewhere and you can't see it. He's saying it doesn't come from the same source. It is all-powerful. It is presently active in the world, but it does not employ the methodology of human kingdoms and governments. Jesus is not a king on Pilate's terms. He will not assume the world's interpretation of power. 
So this is a, a stark reminder that when we're promoting God's kingdom, it is not one of the governments of this world. God's kingdom is not a place. It is all places. God's kingdom is operating within and among all the nations. But it is distinct from them. It operates differently, not with force or rule or mandate, as Jesus points out to Pilate, but through God's transformative power. That's how he rules. Now, Obviously, that begs a question for us. Like, what do we do with that? What, do, what does that mean to us as Christians who are citizens of God's kingdom, but also citizens of an earthly nation like here in the United States? What are we supposed to do then? If Jesus isn't making a claim on civil order or human governments, does that mean that as Christians we just disengage and become neutral or apathetic maybe about everything that happens in the nation where we're placed? I mean, listen... Anabaptists, pietists, they felt strongly that our mission is to go about being the church and let the world does what it does without us. Uh, many churches with Anabaptist origins have, have strong convictions about separating from national interests and, and strong commitments to non-resistance. And, and here's the thing. People who have held those views have made wonderful contributions to the, the work of the church throughout history. I mean, we can't denigrate that because there's some wonderful things that have happened through those who've held that view. It's not necessarily the way I would see it. The, the way I've come to understand this, and again, this is where you've got to take these things home and meditate on them. I'm not telling you how you have to think about this or what conclusions you have to draw. I'm telling you the conclusions I've drawn from this. And what's guiding me in this? Uh, scholars such as N.T. Wright, Tim Mackey, Gary Burge, um, uh, Greg Boyd. I've been informed by them. I've thought it through, prayed about it. This is where I land. That, that, that I believe that as the church, we certainly have a place and even a duty to speak to the world and its systems of government. But we're not grasping for the power that is held by men like Pilate. God's kingdom is at work among human governments, which means Jesus does have something to say about the proper use or the right use of power to those who wield governmental authority. We do have a message for those who exercise power over people, but the exercise of power over people is a human form of government, and that is not what the church has been called to, as far as I can tell. But as Christians, we remember all of these human governments are simply provisional. They're present until the return of the true king. And our allegiance, all through the New Testament, our allegiance is called to be placed on him. His ways, his values, his priorities. It comes back to Christ. And listen, this is a lot. I was telling you before, there's a lot. There's a lot to hear from me, it's a lot to contemplate and, and work through. Time doesn't permit a deep dive into this. I'm willing to discuss this with anybody, but, but I hope at least, at least it'll give us pause to consider what it is that Jesus is saying here, to consider this without just blindly moving along with, with the movements that are happening within our culture, within our nation. Think, think about what Jesus is saying here. What does it mean? I'm coming to my conclusions. You've got to come to yours. What does it mean, what he's saying here? 
especially as we're navigating through this highly polarized and politicized world of American Christianity. We've got to listen to him first and foremost. What is he saying? What does it mean to you? The bottom line for me is that Jesus has firmly declared that his kingdom is not from and does not operate like the kingdoms of this broken world. And from there, we have to determine how that plays out in in real life. All right, we'll keep moving on. Verse 37, everybody's like, finally, let's move on. Pilate said, he's talking to Jesus. Pilate said, so you are a king. Jesus responded, you say I'm a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world. And here it is. So this is why Jesus was born. I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. What is truth? Pilate asked. Then he went out again to the people and told them, he's not guilty of any crime. Okay. As I said, Jesus flatly refuses to allow the political implication of the word king to be placed on him. The old scholar from the 1800s, C.H. Dodd, said that a good paraphrase of verse 37 would be, Pilate says, so you're telling me you are indeed some kind of king, and Jesus responds, king is your word, not mine. Jesus said what his kingdom is not. It's not from this world. Here he tells us what it is. And what is it? It's a kingdom of truth. Now, truth, you know... That's again, you can understand a little bit why Pilate retorts the way he does. Truth. Uh, what are we talking about when he says this? And what we have to first realize is when he's saying that, he's not using the word truth here as just referring to truthfulness as opposed to uh, dishonesty. That's, I mean, certainly a part of it. We, we want to prioritize honesty and truthfulness. But he's using the word truth the way he's used it all through his ministry. Uh, like when he used it back in chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's a theological revelation. Truth, like light, illuminating something that we couldn't see uh, before Jesus came and revealed it. And that's what he's talking about when he's saying truth. Jesus, in that sentence, was saying, I am the way, the truth, and the light. What does he finish up with that? No one comes to the Father except through me. So in other words, the the pathway to the Father, the pathway to God's realm is through him. And I believe this is telling us that the mission of God's kingdom is to reveal and unite us with God's true reality. Jesus' mission has been from the beginning a declaration that God's kingdom is arriving, God's good rule. That is, God's realm is coming to earth so that it will be on earth as it is in heaven. And all through his ministry, he's been revealing what God's rule looks like. It's healing and restoring and humanizing the outcast. All of it meant to give us a glimpse into God's heart, into God's realm, which is active and present, though we can't see it or perceive it. Pilate responds for all of the world that he represents with what is truth. The cynical response that he's giving him on this. He's obfuscating the issue by politicizing it. Because he's basically saying, I got my truth, and you got your truth, and we'll see who wins in this contest. And Pilate's truth is backed by the legions of Rome. Pilate's, in his mind, he's got the greater truth because he's, his truth has a cross on which he can hang Jesus' body. So clearly, in his mind, his truth wins. 
But the kingdom of God reveals a power that is far greater than Rome. The power of God's transformative love, which has left an impact on this world already completely unlike what the powers of Rome or any other empire or human government has been able to achieve. I mean, it seems fantastic to imagine that God's rule expands this way by showing love and grace and forgiveness instead of grasping for power. But Jesus declares that it is the truth that he came to reveal. And we're here today claiming that same truth for ourselves 2,000 years later when Pilate and even the Roman Empire are nowhere to be seen. It's something to grasp a hold of. It's something to, to work through. That reality is actually deeper than what we've been able to experience so far. That God's kingdom is at work in ways that exceed, not our different, not just different from, but exceed our perception of reality. And God's kingdom has not been squashed. God's kingdom continues on. The darkness could rise up, but the darkness could never extinguish the light of his work. Okay, wrapping this up, verse 39. Pilate didn't find enough to sentence Jesus. He goes back to the religious leaders. This, you know, I don't think this is going to work. And then he says, verse 9, but you have a custom of asking me to release one prisoner each year at Passover. Would you like me to release this king of the Jews? But they shouted back, no, not this man. We want Barabbas. Barabbas was a revolutionary. That's where we'll stop today. We have no other historical record of this sort of holiday prisoner release uh, that's described here. But we know that the Romans made a lot of uncharacteristic concessions to the Jewish people during their occupation of the Levant. So this appears to be one uh, of those. There's no reason to think that Pilate is nobly trying to rescue Jesus in from this mob. This is just more theater for him to force the Jewish leaders to acknowledge their submission to him. In the other gospel accounts, it's Pilate who trots uh, Barabbas out uh, to, to offer this I- exchange. And the NLT describes him as a revolutionary. It's lestes in the Greek. It's a word that Josephus uh, the Jewish historian in his in his uh, account of the Jewish wars used to describe the zealots, the zealot movement in Israel. At that time, there was a, a group of people who uh, uh, styled themselves as freedom fighters, uh, and, and they actively tried to resist and fight the Roman occupation in their land. And uh, a subgroup of them were called the Sicarii, named after the swords or the little knives that they would carry. And so they would hide knives or weapons under their robes, and they would go up and, and quickly stab Roman soldiers or collaborators as they saw them and disappear into the mob. They'd sabotage Roman roads. They would spark riots. Today we'd call them religious extremists. Uh, they'd be using IEDs or rocket launchers. They were terrorists by the definition that we employ today. That's who Barabbas was. And the religious leaders hated these guys. You need to know that right off the bat. In fact, the average Jewish citizen hated them because nobody was safe with them running around doing these things and the havoc that it would bring down on everybody. 
So for Pilate to bring this guy out as a trade for Jesus is political machinations at its worst because he knows how badly they want Jesus off the board. And, 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 and this is a taunt. He's saying, would you like me to release this, this king of the Jews? He's goading them, making them choose between two men they dislike. It was a good day for Pilate. He, he had the upper hand in that whole thing. And they choose Barabbas, what they must have considered the lesser of two evils, which is also profound to think about who they sided with in their rejection of Jesus, what method and motive they sided with in their rejection of Christ. On the surface, this was a political chess game, but there was something so much deeper happening in this exchange of Barabbas and Jesus. And it's an important part of the story. You know, it's in every one of the gospel accounts. It's so important in there. Because Jesus, the innocent man, accused of doing the very things that Barabbas did, is sent to his death while Barabbas, the guilty murderer, is set free. And this provides a picture of the nature of God's kingdom and its power. The truth of God's kingdom is enacted in sacrificial love. All of humanity came under the dominion of sin and evil in the fall that's described in the creation account. Sin and evil permeated everything, ruined everything, and figuratively kept us imprisoned and and chained, separated from God, separated from being the humanity that we were intended to be in God's original order of things. And that's how the whole New Testament describes the plight of humanity in this broken world, as being in bondage to sin and imprisoned in in this state. So Jesus stepped in to that place of imprisonment. He substituted himself for us, taking our chains of death on himself. It's the concept of being a substitute, something the New Testament refers to all the time. The theological term for this is atonement, which means you know, atonement is a, is a word that if you break the word down at one minute, it's the means by which we're reconciled with God, brought back into fellowship with him and, and brought back into his family. This, this, this exchange here that happens just almost as an afterthought in John's account of this, this is the power that is greater than Rome. This is the truth that reveals God's divine realm. This is the divine exchange carried on beneath the surface of all these evil political games being played. And again, it shows us this stark contrast between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of our God. Power and envy and pride are the fuel of earthly kingdoms and division and oppression and death is the exhaust of that engine. The strength of God's kingdom is revealed in sacrificial, reconciling love. Something that none of us would be here without. This is the revelation of a new power at work in the world. Something that changes the world profoundly. The power of self-giving love. 
Jesus is revealed as a divine king, not a political king. He's unlike the rulers of this world. He didn't overcome the brokenness of this world by imposing his strength over it, but by suffering for it. What an amazing picture of God. What an amazing picture of God who didn't strike back at his rebellious creation, but instead gave himself to be struck. This is how God disarmed sin. This is how God released humanity from the grip of evil. Not by fighting it on its own level, but by bearing it and taking it away. The most devastating consequence of sin was our separation from God. That wholeness that we received from being image bearers of God. All of that ruined in the fall. Our connection to eternal life severed. This was the intrinsic result of sin entering the world. And Jesus bore those consequences on himself. Providing forgiveness of sins and reconciling the world back to God. Heaven and earth brought back together again. The way God originally intended it. Beginning in our hearts and moving outward from there. And I know maybe I'm getting worked up or whatever and you might be thinking, well, yeah, it's all nice, Rob, but like how, how did Jesus' suffering accomplish that? I mean, and, and, and if he's inaugurated as king, why is it taking so long for him to return and finish what he started in this gospel that we're reading? It's been 2,000 years. I don't know. There's still a lot of mystery to that. I don't know. What I do know, what I do know, is that once I believed in all the possibilities of redemption through his suffering, a light came on in my heart. A new reality began shaping my life profoundly. I'm not the same person I was before. And that gives me hope for all the rest of these promises. When I believed in salvation through his sacrifice for me, a song cut through all the static of this world. I could hear it and I've followed it. And I've followed him ever since. This is our king. This is the song of his kingdom. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of noise. But if we can listen, we can hear what he's saying. We can catch that song. We can follow after him. Let's follow him. Let's embrace the way of this king, of this king. Let's embrace the hope of redemption through his suffering on our behalf. Let's experience and then express God's redeeming sacrificial love into this broken world. This is why Jesus was born into the world. This is what Christmas is about. This is why he came, to reveal the truth of God's good kingdom and to bring us into his family as followers of him. Let's take our place in the long line of God's beloved children 
And let's see how God will change the world through us as we follow him in his ways, in his truth, in his righteousness. Right on? All right, very cool. Will you stand up with me if you're able? God, we're grateful for Christmas. We're grateful that you came into the world. We're so thankful that we have your word. We hear what you say. Now, give us hearts to hear it, to really hear it. Father, I just pray for each one of us. As, as this season continues on, as we contemplate you into this world, help us to search out to find your priorities, your values. Help us to embrace them and draw them into our own hearts and express those loving values into the world. That, Lord, is how we can keep Christ in Christmas. That's how we remember that you're the reason for all of this. So help us to do that, Father. Encourage us. Thank you for your grace towards us. Thank you for taking our place. Thank you for bearing the consequence of our sin. Thank you for restoring us. We'll never stop thanking you for that. We did not deserve it, but you loved us anyway. Thank you, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.